This podcast wouldn't typically be thought of as a true crime genre, but when Jewish insider's Gabby Deutsch took the plunge into a 39-year-old Washington, D.C. murder mystery, we decided to dive in, too. On the morning of February 29, 1984, congregants of D.C.'s Kesher Israel Congregation discovered their rabbi, Philip Rubinowitz, dead in his home, murdered at the age of 63. To this day, no one has ever been arrested or charged in connection to this murder. Don't push pause. You're just moments away from J.I.'s own Gabby Deutsch to discuss her groundbreaking five-part featured series, Who Killed Kesher's Rabbi, right here on Jewish Insiders Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, uh, we have not done uh, something like this before. Uh, I don't know if we will do something like this again. We'll see how it goes in in a couple minutes. But what an incredible five-part featured series. If people have not seen it, jewishinsider.com. Get to the featured series, Who Killed Kesher's Rabbi? It is incredibly written and a true mystery for those of us who have attended Kesher Israel in the past, whether you're a member or just been there. Uh, it is something that maybe you heard about, maybe you know a lot about, maybe you know nothing about, but this is going to be an incredible interview. Yeah, and you know, I got to tell you, I, I will confess, I lived in Washington, D.C. for four years. Uh, I did not go to Kesher Israel. I went to Addis Israel. Uh, and I did not know this story. And so when I read it the first time, I was blown away because it, it seems almost cinematic in quality, right? There's so many uh, uh, twists and turns here. And I think it's, it's we're, we're so glad that Gabby did this series and, and excited to have her on. Yeah, and let, let, let's go ahead and bring her on now. Gabby Deutsch is a Washington correspondent, a Jewish insider. She was previously a contributing writer at J.I., and had worked on the Atlantic's global affairs team and at NewsGuard, a company fighting online misinformation. Gabby graduated from Yale, where she studied history. Gabby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I am very excited to be here. We're excited to have you. I think I speak for Jared as well. I yeah, absolutely. So. This is you know new ground in the Jewish Insider podcast. We're not really known as a true crime podcast, but there is a first time for everything. So really excited and really excited about this This. Uh, really interesting series that you've written and want to hear more about it. So Rich. Yeah, yeah. I got to say, I, you know, personal side note, uh, I don't know where you went to synagogue when you were living in DC, Jared. Whenever, uh, I, w- I went to Addis. I went to Addis. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I have plenty of friends up there. I uh, have been now either a full-time or associate member of Kesher Israel for almost two decades since I first came to Washington out of college. And the story of uh, Robert Benowitz is like, one of the first things you learn early on, especially if you are a regular at the Hashkama Minion. That's the early 7.30 a.m. Shabbat Minion, for those that, that don't know the, the terminology. Uh, the plaque on the wall, the memory shared, the the date of his death, the yort site, as, as we say. Uh, somebody always get, comes up and gives a speech and memory shared of, of the old timers who grew up in the synagogue and remember the rabbi. But, you know, it was always just sort of left there, you know, a mystery. And nobody really took this and, like, did what you have done. Why you? Why now after all these years? Well, first of all, congratulations to you on going to the the 7.30 a.m. Minion on Shabbat. (laughs) I'm impressed by that. I can't do Um, it anymore. I thought I couldn't do it anymore. And then I had children. And now I realize I could do it now. Right, because they're up at 5.30. So 7.30, you're, like, on your second (laughs) cup of coffee. It's the middle Um, of the day. Yeah. Yeah. 
So it, it's a good question. I mean, this is a story, this is something that happened almost 40 years ago. And of course, this rabbi story goes back even further than that. Um, and so the question of why now, it really comes down to um, my boss, Max, a Jewish insider, goes to Kesher and happened to be there two years ago on Rabbi Rabinowitz's yard site on the anniversary of his death. And he mentioned it to me afterwards, you know, I cover Washington and certainly uh, knew all about Kesher and, and the role it plays in D.C. Um, and so I started just Googling to, to see, you know, it's really interesting. You have this notable rabbi who was killed in his home uh, in Foggy Bottom and the case was never solved. And so I was curious if I was missing something and there was some kind of resolution or if people were talking about it. And I just pretty quickly found that um, there really was this unfinished business quality to, to the whole matter. And I didn't go into this project thinking, um, you know, I'm going to be the one to, to close this case, but more just it, it has this really indelible impact on the community at Kesher. The fact that this rabbi was killed and it's it's never been solved. New members, as you said, Rich, learn about it, talk about it. The the legacy of Rabbi Rabinowitz really lives on. And so I just started talking to people who had been at Kesher back in the, the 70s and 80s. Um, and it, it became pretty apparent to me that there was something just really fascinating here about him, about the community, uh, to, to tell our readers. So Gabby, to start off, tell us a little bit about Rabbi Rabinowitz, because he was an interesting character too. He's not, you know, your central casting rabbi necessarily. He was a little bit of a, of a quirky character, right? Absolutely. Maybe a central casting rabbi from a, a very different era. He was born in Poland and came to the U.S. as a teenager to study at a, a yeshiva in Chicago um, and then ended up staying in the U.S. The rest of his family back in Poland and Eastern Europe was killed in the Holocaust, uh, except for one brother who, who lived in Israel. And when he was in the U.S. and made his career here, he was really very much an old timer in the sense that he spoke a lot of Yiddish. He had a heavy accent. Uh, he would go up on, on the Bima at Kesher Israel and give these sermons on Shabbat that um, were charming and quirky and very funny and perhaps sometimes a bit off color. And also uh, you had lots of people who told me that they sometimes couldn't even understand all of it because his accent was so strong. Um, but he was also very old world in the sense that he was very, very generous, um, and not just in the way of giving a lot of tzedakah and supporting good causes. He would really welcome into the synagogue and into his home people in need. He allowed homeless people to, at times, stay in his home or stay in the synagogue, come to synagogue events uh, for, for the food and shelter, um, and really kept this close-knit community going at a time in Washington when a lot of the Jewish community moved up to the suburbs, moved away from Georgetown and downtown Washington. Um, and from what I heard from people, a lot of that was really attributed to, to this person. And and if you read the story, and I don't want to like, we want everybody who's listening who has not read the story to read the, read the story, but... But some, you know, there is a, a subtext that maybe some of this generosity towards anybody and everybody may have been what got him killed, right? Uh, or, or is it? I mean, I guess that's that's a, more of a question than a statement. Sure, definitely a big question and a theme that I explore, and uh, I would encourage listeners to to read the story as well. But there were a lot of questions um, after the rabbi was killed. It. it 
emerged that he had been expecting a visitor the night before he died. Um, and he was someone who was known to, he didn't allow strangers into his home. He didn't open the door if he didn't know who was going to be there. He was security conscious. And DC back then was not not the safest place, although not, that wasn't as much of a problem in his neighborhood. Um, but there was this one man in particular who he was helping who needed a lot of assistance, both financially, emotionally. And um, after the rabbi was, quil- was killed, people began to question whether this person who was perhaps mentally unwell, um, belligerent, sort of asocial, whether he had had a, a role in it. And, and people began to ask this question, when, does, when did the generosity go too far as so that would happen in this case? And as Jared said, uh, incredible read, all, all five parts of the series. Um, we're, we're never going to be able to do it justice of, of the level of emotion that you capture, you know, thinking of even we talked about his life, right? And this tragic figure in many ways of, of you know, the loss of parents in the Holocaust, the loss of his wife at his daughter's wedding, yeah, I mean, I mean that alone that, was was. I mean, what a crazy story! Yeah, and how he like went on with the wedding. I mean, you, you, people have to read this; it's unbelievable. And, and and then this tragedy. But but for those that haven't come there yet, just so we have a conversation everybody follows. You're kind of, you're kind of to me you're kind of like the CSI like on the scene like thirty some years later, you know, forty years later, and like give us um, the facts of the case, right? Like you're the detective, like you're you're showing up. In 1984, February 29th, at the home, you know, along with those congregants you interviewed, the home of uh, of Rabbi Rabinowitz, what is going on? What what are the facts that that we know? So I'll set the scene, just starting with th- that morning and how he was discovered. Um, so Kesher Israel, it's an Orthodox synagogue, so you have a minion there every day of people who are coming to to pray in the morning before they go to work. So that's, that's pretty early in the day. And you need 10 people at, at the minimum for that service um, to be valid, I guess, uh, in, in terms of what's needed for the full Jewish service to continue. And so that morning, this was, this was a time when the synagogue was really struggling with its membership. It was hard to get the, the 10 men needed for that service. And so actually that morning, the rabbi never showed up and he would have been the 10th man there. Um, and they they were calling back to his house. But at a certain point when he didn't answer, they just proceeded with the service without him because you had this group of men here who needed to get to work. And so afterward, when no one had heard of him, a handful of those men walked over to his house, less than a 10 minute walk away. And it's a, a townhouse, um, a row house in Foggy Bottom, right? It's down the street from, from the Foggy Bottom Trader Joe's for our DC listeners. Um, and they they walk up the stairs to his front door and see that it is just slightly open. Um, and so one of the men walks inside and he sees in the rabbi's study, Rabbi Rabinowitz is, is lying on the floor. He's face down. Um, there's blood on the ground. Uh, the police report showed that there was blood that had actually splattered onto uh, other parts of the room. And so it's really this man, this this young astrophysicist actually is, is walking into a very gruesome scene for a rabbi he, he normally saw every day at Shul. Uh, so then when the police come, they, of course, are talking to these men, um, trying to collect evidence from the home. There was a hat that was discovered there. 
as well. And, and there are a lot of theories about uh, who that hat might have belonged to. Um, and because there was so much evidence, there was blood and there were uh, potentially fingerprints as well. Really early on, the police thought and they were telling Rabbi Rabinowitz's family and, and the folks in the Kesher community that they thought this was an open and shut case. Not that it would necessarily be easy, but they thought we have what we need here. We can identify a suspect. But this was also really just a year or two before DNA began to be used in the way that we know now to investigate cases. So this crucial tool that now helps bring a lot of horrible perpetrators to justice wasn't available to police at the time. So um, the only way that they could really arrest someone and charge them with the crime was either a confession, which the killer was not going to do in this case, uh, a witness, and here the crime is believed to have happened very late the night before, and so they didn't identify any witnesses, or through evidence, um, which they also were not able to do. Um, but for at least a year, you had detectives who were saying, we're going to solve this, we're really confident, um, and of course, that, that did not end up happening. So, Gary, what do you think, like, were they just speculating, were they out over their skis, or do they really believe that they were going to, uh, they were going to get somebody like they, they had a suspect and it didn't work out. Like what kind of, or was it just them, uh, prognosticating or, or, you know, uh, puffing themselves up about what they were capable of? I think it's a mix of all of those things. Um, I think if you want to do a charitable reading of the situation, they came to this crime scene and saw all of this evidence and saw here is a community figure who was well known, who was really connected to a whole web of people who could vouch for his whereabouts, who could um, help the police with the investigation and, and perhaps offer their own clues. Um, so that was a big part of it. There certainly were suspects, people who were interviewed by the police. Um, but I think also it's, I have to imagine that it's something they were saying to try and comfort people. If you have this horrible crime for the police to come in the day afterward and say, Basically, we don't know if we'll be able to do this. It's it's not. It's certainly not something that people want to hear, even if that is closer to the truth. And then I, I spent a lot of time reaching out to the DC police in the course of reporting the story, and they were entirely uncooperative. They did tell me that there aren't. The case is technically still open because it's a murder. It's not closed until someone is arrested. Um, but they told me they're not actively investigating it, which is not surprising. It was almost 40 years ago. They don't have any leads, but at the same time, they wouldn't give me any information about what they had found back then. And they, they stonewalled a public records request. Um, so that was was pretty, pretty frustrating. And, and so you mentioned that the t time of death was estimated, I think you, you wrote around 8 p.m. The, the night before. Uh, no sign of forced entry. Um, you wrote that there there wasn't like upheaval, like they weren't like there for a robbery. There wasn't like a lot of stuff everywhere besides the blood splatter and, and, and the murder itself. This, this would seem like somebody who was invited in and unexpected. Uh, where, where do they go as far as suspects immediately and, and describe how that we kind of hinted at at the beginning, um, with, with the rabbi's outreach, uh, to the stranger. Um, but you know, He's, this is a rabbi who's come off of of his wife's death. You talked about his emotional strain after that, focusing on his work, focusing on outreach, um, not known to be disliked by others. You know, wh where do they start moving in the suspect pool? 
right, he was killed the night before he, he actually was found by these members of the synagogue. And um, I was able to, to talk to someone who had actually spoken with the rabbi just before he died, um, who had called the rabbi. They were making a plan for an event the next day. And, and Rabbi Rabinowitz said to him, I'll call you right back. I'm expecting a guest. And then, of course, he never called this man back. Um, this this man kept calling and getting going straight to, to voicemail. Um, and so it became pretty quickly acknowledged that this was someone the rabbi knew. Um, he was very skeptical of crime. So he had a deadbolt. He would pull back the curtains on his home. I learned anytime he opened the door. And so if he saw someone there, he didn't recognize, he wouldn't have let them in. Um, and as you mentioned, there was nothing stolen, nothing of value. Uh, the only thing that was really found to be missing was actually the knife that the rabbi used to perform ritual circumcision. So there, there was a question about whether that knife was actually used in the murder. It was never recovered. Um, and so afterward, the police cast a pretty wide net in terms of thinking about who could have done it, uh, because there were several people that he was helping. Um, he wasn't really someone who was believed to have enemies, but th those are the kinds of things the police had to think through. And so there really was just one person who, from what I gathered, was a serious suspect. Um, this man who the rabbi had been helping, uh, who was a, a an immigrant from the former Soviet Union, who came to the U.S. He had potentially been imprisoned in Russia before he came over. Someone who really didn't didn't mix with um, the educated professional community at Kesher, where you have people who work in politics, work in the White House, uh, work in, in all of these DC political and, and business realms. And so people were sort of, frankly, uncomfortable when, when this man would be at the, the services at the synagogue. And so there was an understanding that um, some people had actually told Rabbi Rabinowitz to have him, to stop helping this man, uh, because he made folks uncomfortable. So there was a lot of suspicion that perhaps the rabbi had told him this and he had grown angry and, and responded by killing him. And so that's someone that the police looked at really seriously um, and was a serious contender. Um, but the police at least felt that they never had the evidence to arrest him. And, and Gabby, let me ask you this. So you allude in your article when they come in for the service, at, the first service after uh, the funeral, and that there is a sense that the person who did it is may have been in the room. Were there other sort of rumors or theories other than the Russian did it, uh, or or was that just sort of idle shul gossip? Like obviously, you don't thank God not have a murder in every shul, but in every you know as long as there have been shuls, there have been shul gossip. So uh, you know, or was there something more substantial than that? Yeah, look, that's a great point, and. Rich, I don't know in your time at Kesher if you heard that story, but I found in speaking to people who are in their 20s and 30s who go to Kesher now who had not even been alive at the same time as the rabbi that they had heard this story about the Russian. So it's really become part and parcel of this story. They're sort of told together. Um, but it is more than gossip. I mean, there was definitely fair reasons to, to consider him. And um, I found records of the police having investigated him. Um, so it wasn't just something that, that you know, folks in, in the congregation were saying. Beyond that, there were some other suspects. Um, I think 
the others were not quite as serious and um it, the the others were not people who as far as i could tell were affiliated with the synagogue um but this russian man who of course was never arrested never charged with the crime innocent until proven guilty uh would occasionally go back to Kesher and actually one time showed up um, a, a few months later and some people from the synagogue saw him and basically forced him out. Um, and so after that, for the next couple of decades, people from Kesher would see him around DC, um, living on the streets or just walking through downtown. And, um, but he, he was around afterwards. And so Gabby, how do you go about reporting a story like this, right? It's obviously very sensitive. It is, it's a, you know, you talked about it, Rich talked about it. It's something that's still very, very much present in this congregation. Um, But, you know, and the Jewish community in DC is not that big, right? So you, me, Rich, none of us are more than one person removed from, from this, this shul. How do you go about reporting a story like this? while being sensitive to the fact that it's very personal to a lot of people. It's something I I took really seriously, um, recognizing that this rabbi's family is still alive, his two children, um, people who were close to him, that even though this was a story I'm writing for a much broader audience, it, it was going to be read by people who knew this man, who had personal connections. And so I tried to really take that into account and and present what happened in as honest a way as I could um, and also portray the rabbi as who he was. And I I present him as this kind and charitable and really beloved figure, not because I want to make him look good, but because that's really what I I gather he was from the people I talked to uh, and what I learned about him. In terms of reporting the story, at first it was very overwhelming. Um, but what I found was I would talk to one person who said, Oh, you're interested in Rabbi Rabinowitz. You have to talk to this guy. And then it just kind of spread from there. But even though this story was so long ago that he died 39 years ago, there are so many people from the Kesher orbit who, even though it was obviously an upsetting and a troubling and a traumatizing time for them, were just happy to have an opportunity to share their memories of this teacher and rabbi who they had loved. And um, so I would have these conversations with people that I didn't know we hadn't met before. I thought would be kind of an introductory call. And then we'd be on the phone for an hour and a half, just reminiscing about their time at Kesher back in the sixties and seventies and eighties. It's interesting. I, I, I definitely heard this story, this theory. Um, this was, this has always been the one that I was told since I first stepped foot there and then started talking about it with those that were there there at the time. I never heard the story of the night of uh, and the confrontation at the evening prayer service uh, and the fact that the rabbi, you know, would never talk to somebody in a certain way, but suddenly was very stern in public with the individual who was fidgety and all that. That was new. That was interesting to me. Um, obviously just adding more suspicion uh, into the case there. You talk a lot about how obviously this happened just a couple of years before DNA evidence took off. Uh, but we've seen so many cold case units around the country go back into their files, go back into evidence kits and see what they can do decades later with DNA forensic analysis and solve cases potentially 
find matches. But there's some challenges here. Talk about that. I think the first challenge is you have to, the police have to want to do it. Um, there's, this is of course not the only unsolved case in Washington. Um, and so the police need to have an interest in, in wanting to solve the case. From what I could gather, it doesn't seem like they're particularly interested in doing that. Um, about a decade ago, they put out a press release urging people to come forward if they had information. And I don't know what prompted that, actually. I think it was someone from the, the cashier community reaching out to the police and expressing their own interest. And then um, this was perhaps sort of a, a perfunctory thing they were doing to appease that person, because uh, I don't I don't get the sense that anything came of it, that they learned anything new a decade ago. Um and when there are so working at a time when crime is rising in D.C. right now, resources are limited. Um, beyond that, there was a flood in the, the D.C. crime lab a few years ago. And I'm not sure if it affected the file from the Rabbi Rabinowitz case, but it definitely affected some of the evidence in the, the D.C. police's possession. Uh, so certainly you can't go back and, and look at evidence that has been ruined in, in a flood. Um, so it's something that. I'm actually still hoping and, and trying to figure out more information about the state of what that, that case file is and what the investigation has looked like. Um, and the police wouldn't even share with me if at some point since DNA came around, if they had reexamined this case. So there are a lot of questions that remain and that I'm trying to figure out about the investigation and, and if there's more that can be done. Gabby, did anybody ever hire like a private investigator or some other like outside of the DC Metro to take a look at this case. It just feels like, you know, if this was like in New York, right? What, what would the community have done if the NYPD did not solve the case? You know, I, I mean, I, I, Rich will tell you though, uh, I'm one of those obnoxious New Yorkers who think the world, you know, uh, you know, ends at the Hudson river. So maybe it's different there, but it, it has anything like that occurred. That's a great question. Uh, I don't think so. And that was that was one thing that I was really curious about as well, not just this question about a private investigator, but it's been so long and it's not that there's a lack of interest um, from people in the community, but just the fact that the community had moved on and in some ways they had to, it's a synagogue and they had to get back to Shabbat and holidays and figuring out what the next phase of life would be like for the people who still went there. Um, but this work of trying to find the killer after it, it sort of, the police never officially closed it down, but after they, they stopped working on it in a serious way, no one really seemed to pick up the slack there. And I don't know if that's because it was just too painful for people or they felt like it wouldn't work and, um, or they felt like they had already kind of gotten some emotional closure. Uh, but I, I don't think that that has, has ever happened. Uh, so an interesting route to, to think about. You quoted from, I think, found a Washington Post um, quotes from the lead investigator at the time, Detective McCann. Did we find out, is Detective McCann still alive? Is, is that person around um, to talk to you today? Or is it like no idea where Detective, Detective McCann's gone? I think I'm pretty sure that he is no longer alive. Um, all of those officers and detectives who um, I found in, in notes, in my research, and in news articles from the time, um, the ones who had worked on this full time, I think most of them were no longer alive. Um, and then there were a couple of police officers who were named who 
I tried a lot of different ways to contact after finding a lot of different uh, phone numbers at records for them and, and was not able to get in touch. So let me ask a personal question. So you are not a reporter who typically covers crime, right? This is not your beat. Um, how was it covering something totally different uh, and, and you know, that sort of cuts to the core of, of you know, it's like the worst case scenario, right? Like a rabbi of, of a shul gets m- murdered and that never gets solved. Like what, what did that mean for you personally as a reporter who doesn't really cover this that often? Yeah, it was totally new for me. I mean, I love listening to, to true crime podcasts and do you, do you like, do you watch only murders in the building? I've seen every episode. Yeah. I love only murders in the building. Um, I, I'd like to think that this was maybe a little bit more serious than what they're doing there, but I yes, definitely yes. watched that while I was working on this and oh, I you did. Thought, thought a lot about it and my own, um, <laughs> sort of amateur sleuthing, if you will. Um, but I didn't make a podcast out of it. So, but you, cause, cause you have this podcast. Now, to be now, on. now you did. Now, now you did. That's it's true, right. It's true. Um, but one of the reasons that this was so fascinating for me, I cover DC, I cover politics and, and national security and foreign policy. And so, so many of the figures who I know from that other reporting work, that's more kind of your day-to-day news reporting have a connection here. Um, because Rich, as you especially would know, if you're Orthodox and you work in that world, odds are you go to Kesher if you live in Washington. And that's one reason I think the synagogue has this sort of outsized importance and reputation for a synagogue that's actually pretty small compared to some other Orthodox congregations. And so to be able to do this deep dive on a really fascinating topic that I hadn't heard of before, but to have it also be relevant and connected to the rest of my work. It felt like a very cool synthesis. I was going to touch on this. I'm glad you did. Cause I, I could imagine that there's some listeners saying like, this is a, this is a crazy cool story. Like very interesting. Like, wow. Thank you. You know, but you're right. Like this is like true crime stuff. Like what is this doing in the Jewish insider podcast? I, I don't go to an Orthodox synagogue maybe, or I don't live in Washington. Like why does anybody care this much? Like there's a lot of synagogues, there's a lot of crimes, a lot of interesting stories out there. And there is something Jewish insidery about Kesher Israel. Yeah. I mean, that's where you know, true, true of, true of Adas, true, true, true of, um, true of Chabad, you know, true, true of a couple other synagogues as well. But you talk about this, like on any given Shabbat, like there's Senator Joe Lieberman. Here's Jack the, Lou, you know, a prominent lawyer, and pro- here's here's an ambassador. Right, here's you know right. all all these interesting people come together and are all bipartisan, by the way, like on Shabbat. And the gossip of Washington is discussed over your kiddish and over your schnapps, and you know it's like this is Jewish insider, right? And this is like the true crime interesting story of the Jewish insidery world. Absolutely. I, um, in the course of doing the story, I talked to a lot of those people who are now the kind of prominent Kesher members, most of whom were not there uh, whenever I was there. He really was at the synagogue at the moment when it shifted from being more um, working class to being really what it is now is this sort of political hub in a synagogue. And, um, it's just a very unique place where you have, like you said, it's bipartisan, Republicans and Democrats, really influential people who are coming together over perhaps liquor that they're sharing on, on a Saturday morning. Um, that, 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 by the way, so many stories of this earlier in life 
when uh, Jack Lou was OMB director, was the budget director, and they were coming close to fiscal cliff and all kinds of crazy budget negotiations. He would come to Hushkama Minion. We'd we'd have our our nice single malt whiskey, uh, Lagavulin, of course, the the Scotch of choice for most of the senators, ambassadors, and high level officials. Uh, and and then he would set off on his walk uh, to the uh, to the White House. And then when he was secretary, uh, I remember he had like a detail. Maybe it was when his chief of staff it was one of them. He had some sort of a detail that would follow him. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, when he would use chief of staff, that was for sure yeah, a thing. And he would walk because um, uh, we we knew people in common in various buildings for Shabbat lunches and stuff. And you know, he would like he asked them to like hang back a little bit so it wasn't like too weird and you know his whole thing. So yeah, yeah. you know, going to synagogue in Washington D.C. is is a very unique experience. Sorry to New Yorkers who think they're the unique experience. Yeah, and I think also look. The, the story is so tragic and the, the DC component is, is really interesting and had a certain relevance to me as a political reporter, but thank God, of course, this kind of tragedy is, is very rare. And if this happened anywhere in the Jewish world where you have a prominent rabbi who is killed in an unsolved murder, um, it would be relevant. And, and I would think of interest to folks in the Jewish community, but this was for me as a reporter with, with the interests I have and the work I do was just a really unique combination of all those interests. So one, one final question, Gabby, do you think, and maybe Rich, you feel free to chime in here now as well, but do you think in the year 2023, a rabbi of a, of a prominent synagogue could get murdered and have it not be solved and not, and the community sort of not lose its mind and, and sort of like make enough noise until enough resources were put at it? To, to have, I mean, like, I just can't imagine a world today in 2023 where a rabbi for a prominent synagogue in a I agree with you could, could, could get murdered and the police could just like not solve the case. I, I don't know. Yeah, that was without a doubt the 21st century mindset that I was bringing to this. I mean, the one of the biggest questions that I asked everyone I spoke to and that I had in my mind was, did you think that this was anti-Semitism? And without question, everybody said no. And the fact that a, a rabbi could be killed and the thought of that it wasn't motivated by anti-Semitism, that's just, I think, astonishing if that were to happen, God forbid, in 2023. Um, and so to answer your question, of course, there's there's no way to know, but to the point about whether it could happen without people losing their mind, I don't think so, just given the way that, um, of course, the security question about synagogues has shifted and grown as anti-Semitism has unfortunately gotten so much worse in this country. You also now have cameras in every synagogue, um, just the technology that has advanced since then, and also the different ways that Jewish communities have begun to think about security. I think that would be a huge factor, but I also think like you would have people in the community on social media every day, lobbying police, politicians. Right, like the advocacy, the, the the ability for the community to do advocacy has taken a multiple quantum leaps from 1984 to 2023, right? But, but have- I will, I, what I do hope is, and I, and I see possible, it comes through in, in the text, maybe this wasn't what it was like, that there is some sort of like uh, resistance, annoyance, you know, go away from Metro Police. You know, like there, this is not like a hey, come on in, let let you know, let me show you the evidence box, like from a movie. You know, let's go. It's 
it's very much like, yeah, you know, it's closed, maybe they're like, yeah, something happened to the evidence, we don't really know. Like, maybe there's an opportunity for some, like, very, like, entrepreneurial force, a, a, a different department somewhere in the country that would want to take it on, a county, uh, somebody in Israel, you know, that has, like, incredible forensic capabilities and could just swoop in and be like, we'll take chain of custody. Can we take over the case? Like, give us an opportunity. Um, just technology is like so amazing now that you never, you just never know. You just never know. I think absolutely for anyone who wants to be enterprising and then try to solve this, I, I, I wish them luck. And of course hope that that happens. Um, and I, I just, I think that you're right, Rich, there was conversation between the folks at cashier and the police in DC, but, um, now you have these partnerships that are needed because of a fear really of anti-Semitism. At the time, there was no security at the synagogue. And even afterwards, when they started having security, it wasn't police. It was just they would have a man from the synagogue stand outside on a Saturday morning. And if someone unfamiliar wanted to come in, they would stop and talk to them. But uh, certainly not the the kind of thing that, that we see today. Gabby Deutsch, thank you so much for the article. Everybody should read it. Uh, well, articles, Amazing. sorry. Really, really well written. Thank series. you. And thank you for being with us today on the podcast. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to talk with both of you. Wow. That's a lot. And a lot of questions that are still unanswered about this case. And I don't know if we'll ever have any answers, huh, Rich? I'm really sort of stunned by Metro PD's approach to all of this. I don't know why, even just from a PR perspective, they wouldn't just say, here's all the files, go go have fun. Like, we've done this, we got nothing left. If you find something, you know, let us know. Or or go to a, a different department. Or, or has no one ever reached out to them and say, we'll take it over, we'll look, we have forensic labs, we'll run everything. I mean, yeah, no one's ever know, had it, an interest in doing that in 39 you know, years? I think it also speaks to uh, the complicated nature of law enforcement in Washington, D.C., because there are so many federal agencies at play who do, uh, you know, they are in some respects a, a smaller to medium sized city police department. And it's not like a Chicago or a New York or an L.A. Um, it's it's more akin to like a, a, a second tier city in terms of um, the size and breadth of the police department, because there are so many other police departments doing so many other things in, in the district. But I was floored that, you know, the 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 Jewish community, which in many cities is just super active politically, would kind of tolerate no, the non-progress from Metro PD. But, you know, again, I'm the obnoxious New Yorker in most conversations. So maybe that's just my New York bias. Well, uh, I, I, I think it's also, it's interesting because a lot of us, our generation, even maybe one generation up, Washington, D.C. being a, a transient area, right? Especially for young people right. who come in and out of working government. The the number of people who are sort of the permanent fixtures of a Jewish community in Washington are much lower than the total number of people who have touched Jewish Washington o- over their careers. And that Georgetown community is on a relative basis, the, the thriving nature of it is a more recent phenomenon. Certainly within my lifetime and my career in Washington, my time living there. But you go back to this era and you hear her describing a, a community that's struggling to make a minion right at any particular right. point of the day. That doesn't happen today. 
And so this is a much smaller, you know, weaker, likely politically, but weaker in numbers. And they're just trying to get through it, right? right. Uh, and and it wouldn't be another maybe 20 years until you have this more robust, vibrant community that would have been capable of really flexing his arms, using his muscles. Maybe there's a question of why didn't other allies in more established communities come come to the rescue as well? You know, was this more of a fractured community life, you know, with, with this orthodox enclave? I, mean, I, I don't really know. Uh, good questions to ask. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, if you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening.